When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are many stories from the late 1930s of European and American intellectuals being taken on stage-managed tours of the Soviet Union, and nearly all of them returned to their home countries with glowing reviews of what they had seen. An exception, a big exception, was the French novelist André Gide's account, which was called Back from the USSR where he claimed that artistic and other freedoms were in even worse shape there than in Hitler's Germany. The philosopher Simone de Beauvoir, who you'd guess should have known a little better, remembered the impact of Gide's book on her own circle of communists this way, and this is what Simone de Beauvoir said. We had never imagined the USSR to be a paradise, but we had also never seriously questioned the construction of socialism. It was inconvenient to be required to do so at the very moment that we felt disgusted by the policies of the democracies. Was there nowhere on earth where we could cling to hope? End quote. And in the margins of the book where I found this remark, I simply wrote the word, no, no, there is... There is nowhere on earth where we can cling to hope, if by hope we mean uh, certainty. And Simone de Beauvoir's words prompt a string of questions. How can we keep ourselves from being members of any group who never seriously question their allegiances? How can we keep ourselves from imagining that any group or philosophy that we belong to will never be challenged, because if Simone de Beauvoir was this ignorant about the group she belonged to, how well informed could she have been about those that she disagreed with? And how can we keep ourselves from being so desperate for some sense of completion, some sense of reassurance, some sense of belonging? Also. How can we cleave to our most important beliefs and ideas and continue to derive meaning from them while at the same time refusing to diminish the beliefs and the ideas of others? How can we come to find meaning not in some perfect ideology that wipes all other ideologies away, but rather in the mess and the mix of all of them? How can we come to find meaning not in the desperate search for safety, but in the realization that we are not safe and never will be? And again, the notion of safety that we will never find is the safety of certainty. Now, in an interview with the critic George Steiner, that familiar question about the Nazis comes up. How could people who listened to Bach and Beethoven by day put Jews in gas chambers by night? And you'll remember that I played a quotation 
or played a portion of an interview with George Steiner a few episodes ago. And this is from that same interview. And this is a common question, of course. How could such a civilized, how could a country as civilized as Germany uh, end up doing what they did? And this is George Steiner's uh, pretty remarkable answer. You referred just now, George Steiner, to one of the abiding themes of your work, which is which is how men who appreciated great works of art could listen to them and, and read them by night and then put people in gas ovens by day. It may sound like an extraordinary question, but why do you find that such a paradox? You're quite right. There are many people who seem to accept this, who say, why should love of great beauty and even ability to perform it or carry it out be any barrier well there I got it utterly wrong all I can plead was there were quite a few splendid people who got it wrong too from Plato to Matthew Arnold perhaps to F.R. Leavis a wonderful teacher who was certain that the cultivation of the sensibility of beauty of humanity of seriousness in art in literature in music in painting would be some kind of help some kind of barrier against inhumanity. But it's all over our world. Inhumanity can be combined with high aesthetic experience. Um, and I don't have an answer. So the humanities don't necessarily humanize. Civilization no. doesn't necessarily civilize. It may indeed barbarize. Now, as you just heard, uh, during the interview, uh, George Steiner admits that he doesn't have an answer as to why this might be why civilization does not civilize. Uh, but let me suggest this as a possible answer. One cliche about, quote, knowledge, the idea of knowledge, is the image of arrogance and tribalism that is wielded by those who think that they have it, that they have knowledge, and the confidence that it gives them to condemn other people, other ideas, and other ways of life who, to their mind, don't have this knowledge, this wisdom, this way, this truth, uh, this certainty. And by the time you reach this point, suddenly art and culture aren't about the experience of Bach or Beethoven, but it is instead become a matter of criticism, of classification, and comparison. And when you get to this level too, it's uh, on a more popular level, uh, it also is just a matter of hatred, us against them. Now, criticism, classification, comparison, these things are fine enough on their own, but they are inevitably put to the use of the kinds of value judgments which culture, at its explosive and most meaningful core, largely has nothing to do with, and these are notions of superiority, notions of competing schools, and the propping up of one form of interpretation or experience or truth over all the others. Just think of a, an immense experience that any of us can have in a house of worship, an immense experience that any of us can have at a movie that changes your life, or hearing a piece of music that changes your life. The one that comes to mind right now is uh, when I was in my late teens or early 20s, and this is back uh, well before smartphones. I was going to bed and I, I heard uh, on NPR late at night 
a string quartet playing, and I had never heard anything like this in all of my life, whatever this piece of music was. And I had to stay up, since this was a time before smartphones, I had to stay up until the piece of music was done and to find out what it was. And it turned out that it was a string quartet by the American composer Alan Hovhannis. And it was a piece of music, I believe, called uh, Recollections from Childhood. And if anyone out there wants a, a album of music to sort of set your life to, set your life by, that you can just put on repeat for days and days, find uh, an album, I'll, I'll just put a link to it in the post description actually, from Alan Hovhannis, uh, performed by the Shanghai Quartet, uh, an album called Spirit Murmur, I believe is what it's called. Now, the piece of music that I heard, the Recollections from Childhood, uh, doesn't come until about track 12, but everything before then is just as incredible. So think of the, that those moments, the moments at the House of Worship, whatever we have, just studying philosophy or going out into nature or doing whatever it is that you do. Um, think about a moment that you've had with a piece of art, a work of art, a movie, a piece of music, a painting, a book, a piece of poetry. And when you're in the midst of that experience where your life has been altered or where just a bad day has become something that is more easily bearable, uh, notions of superiority, notions of competing schools, notions of, well, this person thinks this about this work of art or this religion, this person thinks that about that work of art or that religion. None of that comes up in the midst of those experiences, do they? And, uh, and that is what I am getting at here. Ecclesiastes 1.18, chapter 1, verse 18, says that, For as wisdom grows, vexation grows. To increase learning is to increase heartache. And I'll repeat the second part of that here. To increase learning is to increase heartache. But unlike the usual interpretations of this verse, I don't think that this is a comment on the dangers of learning too many things, of learning too much, but it is rather a comment on the safety and the certainty that we mistakenly presume that knowledge will give us and the heartache that comes when we realize that that is, what no that is not what knowledge gives us. That is not what knowledge is about. It is not about certainty or safety. To pretend that study and experience ends at a point of stability rather than one of continuation and flux cannot help but increase heartache. I will never forget how, in the middle of some conversation that I was having in high school, I will never forget how a friend showed up at one point and looked confused and she said, I'm not on your level. This is what my friend said. But even then, even in high school, I was a sophomore or a junior in high school. Even then, I knew the right response instinctively. And I looked at my friend and I said to her, there are no levels. There are no levels. Now, as with, the, as, as with many of the statements that I made above, Saying there are no levels doesn't mean that somebody who knows about a subject should pretend that they don't, 
or that we shouldn't be able to admit that Shakespeare is a better writer than the latest literary fad, or indeed that we shouldn't be allowed to criticize violent regimes or oppressive religious groups, or any of the oppressive and dogmatic or just silly tendencies in academia. I can see all of the uh, objections to most of what I've said. Uh, you shouldn't be able to say any of this. If, if anything goes, then anything goes, and nothing uh, should ever be criticized. Um, what I'm trying to say is that knowledge, just simply knowing something, knowledge is not a pissing contest. Knowledge is not an excuse for arrogance. The pose of the insecure intellectual, the guy reading Thomas Pynchon on a bus with the book facing up so everyone can see that he is reading Thomas Pynchon, um, that cliché is so well known because what does such a person illustrate? Such a person illustrates that the security and the certainty and even the pride that we take in knowledge is illusory. You wouldn't have to pretend that you were reading something deep or something that only a few people could understand. There would be no reason to do that if knowledge actually gave you a sense of certainty and safety. Um, it doesn't, and that is why people act uh, that way. And I should make it very clear here, actually, one thing that's come to mind in recording these is that I do need to insert one small, another small essay into the mix here that may only appear in the print version, uh, where I make it very, very, very clear that I am not the poster boy, the poster middle-aged adult. Uh, perfect expression of any of this. Um, I don't mean to make it sound as if I live out this un in my daily life uh, any better than anybody else. I think that half of Notes from the Grid is just a reminder to myself. There's the wonderful idea that the, uh, that the four-cornered prayer shawl that uh, that uh, Jews pray under, that Jews wear during prayer, during davening, with the fringes along the edges and uh, the, the knotted cords at the corners. Um, there's the idea that it is simply a reminder uh, to do well, to do the mitzvot in Judaism, but in regular life, for those who aren't Jews, to just do good things. As Bill and Ted said, be excellent to each other. Um, I think that's what a lot of this book is just for me. I think of how uh, a description I once read or heard of Charles Dickens, this man who was able to write about the rich and the poor with great sympathy, who was able to write about the weak with great sympathy, who was able to write about the young and the old with immense sympathy, that in his own life, with his wife and his children and his family and the people that he lived with every day, his publishers, his other writer friends, um, that he was or could be, or very frequently was, um, a monster. Now, I don't claim to be a monster in my personal life, or in my social life, but I think it's worth saying that uh, sometimes 
being able to express these ideas or trying to put them into words is hard enough and trying to live them is two or three or four times as hard. So this is just all of this, uh, which won't be in the print version. That's the fun part about doing these for the podcast is that a lot of this will never make it into print. Uh, the extras, the DVD extras are in the audiobook. Um, is just to say, I am not pretending that I am perfect in any of this, or that I have never been on a bus with a, with a book of T.S. Eliot's poetry, desperately wanting someone to notice that I am reading T.S. Eliot's poetry. And that leads into this last section of this essay quite well. The most important things, then, are not unassailable. The most important things are actually the most fragile things. And the most profound and beautiful things are also those things that are most easily cheapened or turned to tragedy or turned to ugliness. Love, sex, and family can so easily combine all that is best in us, all that is selfless, generosity, trust, caring, and the recognition of ourselves as fulfilled in another, but it can quickly turn and become the very opposite all that is selfish and cruel and not worthy of trust. Words, just simple words, can express the essence of our hearts and our souls. Words can clearly say everything which dry and logical words are capable of, and words can suggest all that is beyond words. Words can bring people together through actual communication, or Thanks to the ease with which words are manipulated, words can be used to deceive, to drive people apart, or to communicate or encourage the worst selfishness and prejudice. So that the most important things are that important. They are so important. They, they reach that point of being so important, not for their strength, but for being so vulnerable, of always being on the head of a pin, of never being far from the greatest joy or the worst tragedy. No amount of, quote, civilization can save us. No certain interpretation of God or of history, and no certain allegiance to any idea, to love of a composer, of a band, an author, a movie, a director, a political party, a country, a uh, point in time in history, um, a great person that you suddenly realize that you can follow, uh, a set of books on a shelf, all the spines matching, a great box set of music or DVDs, um, or just a photo album that seems to contain everything that suddenly puts you at peace. Uh, none of these things can keep any of this from falling to their very worst. Only humility and empathy can. Only humility and empathy, among other things, can even attempt to.
My younger self would have been amazed by all of the problems that I have come to see in obsessing over identity, categories, and all the rest. As a teenager, I knew my J.D. Salinger very well, and I was pretty certain that I was surrounded by nothing but phonies. And the only way for me to feel any sense of control or certainty about life in high school, it seems, was to imagine that everyone possessed an identity as unique and irrefutably distinct as I imagined my own to be. It wasn't enough, in other words, to find comfort in believing that I was different from others. Everyone else, everyone else, had to be just as unreachable and different from me. The clinical psychologist Mary Pfeiffer has said this of adolescence, quote, with amazing acuity, they sense nuances, doubt, shades of ambiguity, discrepancy, and hypocrisy, end quote. And how true, of course, but notice what's missing and what was surely missing from my mind when I was that age. Adolescents aren't given any constructive way to deal with ambiguity or hypocrisy. They aren't told how to live in a difficult world, and so they only end up criticizing it. And it strikes me, all these years later, that while observing cable news or social media or the lives of activists or influencers who have all carved out their own terrified piece of labeled and identified ground, that Mary Pfeiffer's description pretty much sums up the adult world right now. It is one of perpetual adolescence, unable to deal with ambiguity, and only able to cling to their identities or to various forms of tribalism. About 10 years ago, I came across a documentary about Martin Luther. And while I knew next to nothing about Luther and afterwards thought it had been a good introduction, I noticed that nearly all of the snarky reviews complained about, quote, what was left out. And noticed that it was to reviews that I immediately went. And not just to reviews, but to the negative ones that I immediately went to. Uh, that is interesting in itself. Uh, so everybody was complaining about what was left out. But considering that the English edition of Luther's writings is now beyond 70 volumes, even a documentary four or five times longer could not possibly cover everything. And indeed, even the word everything loses any precise meaning in its attempt to contain so much. The people who were complaining, I realized, were expecting what I had in high school, a level of perfection, of completeness, and even of purity that was impossible. Finding it lacking, they were unwilling to just take what they could from the documentary and instead dismissed the whole thing. Now, while I imagined that I was beyond such blind spots like this, uh, at that age that I was, probably in my 30s, mid-30s, when I really sat back and thought about it, I suddenly saw that my adolescent desire for perfection had been replaced with a similar desire for the shelter of what I would call completion. If I found a poet that I liked, 
I read every poem of theirs, and then their letters and a biography. I tried to do the same with novelists, and in time I became adept, if anything, at making great chronological lists of this or that author's output. And I seem to remember taking a lot of time with the, with the lists of Dostoevsky's novels and Jack Kerouac's novels. For some reason, those two come to mind. I also collected translations of Homer or the Tao Te Ching or the Bible, or as many Arthurian romances as I could find. I sought out old multi-volume sets like The Golden Bough or The Mythology of All Races, since, in their own way, they suggest a great encyclopedic totality. And for a long time, I refused to read any part, say, of the great Hindu poem, the Mahabharata, since it was only available either in an incomplete English version, running more than ten volumes, or as an abridgment or a retelling, none of which could satisfy my need for the whole thing. I should say that I did finally go in for the Penguin Classics translation slash abridgment of the Mahabharata. If you have a chance to buy that, do go ahead and do it. It's about eight or 900 pages, and it features, I would say, probably 600 pages of translation and about 300 pages of summaries of what happens in between. I remember the month or so that I spent reading that with uh, with great affection, really, just swimming through this thing, knowing that it was incomplete, knowing that the experience was imperfect, knowing that I was not getting the whole thing, but having one hell of a ride doing it. And to get back to the essay, certainly the simple enjoyment of these books was the primary urge for all of these lists, all of these gatherings, all of this uh, need for quote-unquote completion. But I realized that the belief that, like some safety blanket, that I could hold all of a writer or a subject in my hand, that was also part of it. Yet, as with my reaction to the reviews of the Martin Luther documentary, I always sensed that this completeness was probably impossible. And I found this truth best articulated in the writings of archaeologists and scholars of the ancient world, many of whom gladly admit the limitations of their field, of their work, of their discipline. Douglas Price, the author of a wonderful book called uh, Europe Before Rome, writes that archaeology, quote, is an endeavor without visible end. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. While Barry Cunliffe put it this way, in his book on the prehistory of Britain. I believe it's called Britain Begins. He says, our vision of the past is always changing. The cherished beliefs of today, so painstakingly constructed and rigorously checked, will inevitably have to be modified tomorrow. An archeologist writing of the past must be constantly aware that the past is, in truth, unknowable. The best we can do is to offer approximations based on the fragments of hard evidence that we have at hand, ever conscious that we are, we are interpreters. What is offered here is a single perspective, crystallized at a particular moment, because next year 
the story will have changed. Herein lies the excitement of the subject. And of course, the issue with all of this is, is that when you put that idea and uh, throw it like a blanket over somebody's religion, somebody's um, livelihood as a teacher or an artist in a particular field, or over a political party or over the history of a country or whatever you want to think of that people can get attached to, um, when you try to say that those things are also uh, not necessarily um, unknowable, but they are approximations, what we do know about them are approximations, um, most people do not find excitement in that fact. And I suppose that Notes from the Grid is a way of reaching out to the people who do and giving them some reassurance that it is indeed very exciting. And another example of this that I found is in an old book by one of my favorite authors on the history of religion, uh, the Romanian uh, scholar Mircea Iliade, which now includes an introduction for a new generation of readers. The writer says that Iliade's books, more than 60 years old by now and clearly dated, can still serve, quote, as starting points for the comparative study of religion, end quote. But in a way, that's all anything is. That's all Iliade's work was the moment it was written or the day it was published, a starting point, a way through the door, a way, as I've said uh, in an earlier essay about other things, uh, a way to get on to something else. And perhaps the words that we use to sum up our identities now should be the same. They are a starting point. They are a starting point and they are far from complete. My teenage self would have been horrified to be told as much, but really, just consider how many of us fill our lives and find meaning simply with a string of starting points, of anecdotes, of meaningful stories, meaningful quotations, meaningful uh, family traditions, bits of family or religious or national or autobiographical lore that just props us up. Think of how much of that is really going on and what is so bad about that. It doesn't need to be a huge edifice backed up by science and data and all the rest of it. As an adolescent, of course, the, quote, real world that I was beginning to apprehend seemed to be an appalling mixture of motives, of talents and desires. And so many of these things were at odds that I could only assume that at some point things would get righted somehow. But it took years to realize that pretty much any activity, absolutely any activity, undertaken outside of isolation inevitably involves difference and compromise, and that any expression of meaning that lasts has to be elastic. It has to always be capable of change and flux. Now, this essay has two quotations from Jean Gehenno. He was a French writer who lived during World War II, and if anyone would like an, 
a really amazing reading experience. Go and find the David Ball translation of Jean Gehenno's Diary of the Dark Years. It came out a few years ago, and I believe it was published by Oxford. Um, it is an incredible book, and the two quotations in this essay uh, just give you a hint of what he is doing. He is someone who refused to seek publication while uh, Paris and while France was under German occupation and German control. And so that what he writes in his diaries is what is his major contribution of those years. And this is what he says when he has time to reflect on his own youth. This is incredible. This is one of those things that um, I hate to put into my own book because uh, it will stand out and shine so much better than anything that I have said. But uh, for all that, um, this is remarkable. This is what John Gehenno says. But at the age of 20, we think that we have the task of changing the world. And when we discover how very imperfect it is, we think that we've fallen into an ambush. Thus, I remember being deeply shocked by the inadequacy of creation and vowing to correct it. I toiled for 30 years. I was hard and full of anger. I looked at my contemporaries as so many enemies every time I found them inclined to accept a world in which all I could see was poverty and injustice. I brandished like a sword a few little ideas that I of course thought had come from the depths of my being, whereas they may merely have been prompted by the furies of the day. I strove to frighten people as if that were a good way of persuading them. I found with all my strength and condemned as cowards those who did not commit themselves to the battle with the same heart. I wore out the best of myself in those battles, and it was not enough. I almost forgot to live. Now, I would, uh, I would be lying here, or at least lying by omission, if I didn't uh, say, where's the line here? I brandished like a sword a few little ideas that I of course thought had come from the depths of my being, whereas they may have merely been prompted by the furies of the day, and I almost forgot to live. Um, I would be lying if I didn't say that perhaps Notes from the Grid is my equivalent of that. I don't know. Um, the episodes that I've done so far reading from it have garnered a good response, a good number of listeners, but I really am still unsure as to their value outside of my own head. I recall the episode where I quoted Harold Bloom, where he says uh, something to the effect of, when I go to the bookstore, to see what of my own writing people have highlighted and the things that they leave alone. Invariably, the stuff that he most cared about and that he worked hardest on, people didn't seem to put a star next to that or highlight it. It was the other stuff, the stuff that he uh, sort of had to get through to make his major point. That was the stuff that people noticed. And it strikes me that Notes from the Grid is simply a collection of those things that seem most important to me, that seem to be my major point, but which, as Jean Gehenno says, uh, 
may merely have been prompted by the furies of the day. And when it says, when he says, I almost forgot to live, I should say that I am recording this in a open-air parking garage in North Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina. Um, you might say, having forgot to live. I could be doing uh, so much else in North Myrtle Beach on a, what day is it, on a Thursday night in the year 2022. But instead, I'm in a locked car uh, doing this. So it is worth bringing up doubt when it exists. One way in which fundamentalists of all stripes convince themselves that there really is only a single way to live and believe is by saying that we cannot, quote, pick and choose. Usually this means that we can't merely take from a religion or a culture what we like and discard from it what we don't. This, as my teenage self would say, would be hypocritical. But whether in terms of religion or politics or culture, there is nothing but picking and choosing. There is nothing but the difficulty of actively choosing all the time. It is almost as if those who pretend to have any certainty about religion or culture, what they really want to do, it seems to me, is just absolve the responsibility of their own choices and life. As the writer Leanna Wieseltier put it in a book that was published in 1996, he says, indeed, historians will record that in America at the end of the 20th century, scientism enjoy, enjoyed a revival as Americans became so uncertain of themselves that they required for the formulation of their identities nothing less than the certainty of science or the certainty of religion. They would like to be absolved of responsibility by inevitability. But, and that is end quote, but the only inevitability in the history of a country, of a religion, of a political party or of a culture though, the only inevitability in all of that is one of change. Certainly there is, or there are threads of continuity everywhere. The archeologists will tell you that, but there is never a complete absence of change. And so whether you call it reinterpretation or picking and choosing doesn't much matter since that is what is happening on a daily basis. So that even the most orthodox, rigid, and supposedly conservative among us are perhaps, without knowing it, still just picking and choosing what they want to live by against the examples of what they don't. In a very strange way, the adolescent who rebels against everything, the religious fundamentalist who thinks his or her version of the truth will fix the world, and those who have ensconced themselves behind mountains of jargon in academia, in a very strange way, these people are all doing something very similar. They are retreating behind a dogmatic certainty that simply doesn't exist. I'll repeat that. They are retreating behind a dogmatic certainty that simply does not exist. And here, uh, from a diary entry in 1943, Jean Gehenno uh, summarize the consequences of this malaise in academia. This is one of my favorite uh, quotes about academia anywhere. He says, I know of a professor 
who spent a whole year giving a commentary on the French poet Alphonse de Lamartine's Le Lac, which I believe was published around 1820 or so. This professor traced to the history of a little pink or blue notebook in which Lamartine had scrawled a few stanzas of his poem. He related what hands it had passed through, he counted the pages, he analyzed them, and that required several lectures. When the last lecture came around, neither he nor his students had yet read the poem. To these so-called historians, it seems that all of the artists of the past suffered, wrote, and lived only to provide matter for a few bibliographical index cards. Thus, they have fused research with education. Now, we must have researchers, but researchers are not professors. Let the researchers do research, and the professors teach. But in the best case, we train bookworms. From the age of 20 on, we accustom them to remain inside one drawer of index cards. We train them to compile notes and work their way through it. We cultivate petty vanity in them. For them, knowledge will always consist in adding a card to their file, like a gram to a kilo, and knowledge will distract them from their life, which it should rather enrich and govern. And I suppose now, uh, the only difference almost 80 years on is that uh, researchers, well, research has overtaken, it seems, all of it. Um, and I might say nowadays that in general, in the wider scope of what Notes from the Grid is getting at, we have merely made index cards of each other, of all of us. Terrified by the loneliness of the subjective of the deeply personal and the deeply strange, and encouraged by our deep need simply to belong and our deep need to organize the world, we would all much rather make of ourselves a color-coded spreadsheet than a sprawled, very varied landscape. Knowing myself the pain, the really deep, abiding, unforgettable pain of loneliness and of not feeling that one belongs, I understand the need to do this, but even so, none of our categories and none of our attempts at identity can completely or certainly represent or explain us, or be used to dismiss those who are different from us. My hesitation and social awkwardness of more than 20 years ago had no way of seeing this, no way of apprehending this. A remark from Miss Manners which I first came across back in high school while reading Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, has always stayed with me, and Miss Manners says, In civilization there have to be some restraints. If we followed every impulse, we'd be killing one another. I would just change that quotation to something closer to this. In civilization there have to be some restraints. But if we take those restraints too seriously, if we become attached to what we believe those restraints should be, those limitations, those barriers, the things that belong and the things that don't, we will end up killing one another, or firing one another, or banning one another, or no longer talking to one another. Because in the end, what is it that allows for prejudice more? 
and what allows for bigotry other than a habitual tendency to reduce people to only a few details and characteristics and what does social media and cable news do but reduce people to only a few details and characteristics. It is much harder to dehumanize those that we believe to be complex, multifarious, and varied. As I mentioned earlier, how many times have we heard of a violent criminal who believes nothing is as important as power, celebrity, or infamy? How many times have we heard such people say that they only arrived at this point after their unrealistic notions of religion or culture or politics or just family inevitably failed them and they felt that they were, quote, left with nothing. As a character in one of Nietzsche's books says, man, humanity, is for me too imperfect a thing. Love of man would kill me. And as one of the teenage girls that Mary Pfeiffer spoke to put it, quote, I like things that humans hadn't touched. I liked things orderly and regular, end quote. Now, this emphasis on imagining that imperfection, disorder, and irregularity can somehow be overcome, and that human beings should strive for it in themselves and expect it of others, this is everywhere. This is absolutely everywhere. And it is perhaps no surprise to find something like it in a passage from the journals of Eric Harris, one of the murderers who killed 12 fellow students and a teacher at Columbine High School in 1999. This is one of the things from his journals. Deal with it or commit suicide. Just do it quick. In all caps, kill mankind. No one should survive. We all live in lies. People are always saying they want to live in a perfect society. Well, utopia doesn't exist. It is human to have flaws. You know what? Fuck it. Why should I have to explain myself to your survivors when half of this shit I say you shitheads won't understand? And if you can, then whoopee fucking do. If I can't pound it into every single person's head, then it is pointless. It is all, it is, it's just all nature, chemistry and math. Deal with it. Elsewhere, Eric Harris puts it this way, saying, how dare you think that I and you are part of the same species when we are so different? And doesn't that sum up how I felt or the belief that I thought that I had to have in high school? Everybody was so different from everybody else, especially me. The pain and the difficulty of navigating an imperfect world was so great that not only was Eric Harris unable to see how similar he was to other teenagers, but he assumed that all life in the world wasn't living at all, and that everyone should just die. He thought that all he had discovered about the world in 18 years had left him with nothing. but. That nothing, that nothing that he felt, that nothing that he thought he had found, and that shocked him and surprised him as if no one had ever found it before him, that nothing is the entirety of actual life in the world, that huge sea of uncertainty and imperfection that is everyday life, where we must all find different ways of belonging. 
I'll remind you what the character in Nietzsche's Zarathustra said. Man is for me too imperfect a thing. Love of man would kill me. Well, I would say, learning to love others different from us isn't what kills us, but rather our inability to do so. In the Pirkei Avot of Judaism, the sayings of the fathers, the sayings of the masters of Judaism, there is a remarkable phrase, and it says, any controversy which is for the sake of heaven will endure. I'll repeat that. Any controversy which is for the sake of heaven will endure. Now, not only does this mean that uh, uh, you should probably not spend too much time on controversies which are not for the sake of heaven, but the general idea is if you think that you found an answer, if you think that you've come to the end, if you think you can proclaim anything worthwhile with certainty about a controversy which is for the sake of heaven, something that people have been arguing about for years, if you think that you've reached the finish line in an argument, you've fooled yourself. Any important question has only attained that status of being an important question by remaining a question, by not finding an answer, by never being solved, by constantly being talked about, constantly being lived with. The circle that you thought you were drawing and coming to the conclusion of is actually a spiral spinning in and out of itself. And if it is occupied with a task of true importance, it will never stop. It will never reach the center or the outer edge. It will never be perfect or closed or completely secure, but it will hover there and hum in praise of itself, in praise of its endlessness, in praise of its imperfection without rest. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.